Well, I invite you to join me if you take your Bibles with me, and we're turning in our Bibles to Psalm 8, so let's turn there again together, if you will. Psalm chapter 8. As we find our portion of God's Word there, let's read it together to get it in our heart and mind, and then we'll complete our study of Psalm 8 here this evening. Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. We have before us here in Psalm 8 a choice portion of Scripture, one that was special in the life of David as he would pen this as a hymn for the Christian church throughout all time, throughout all ages, but also as a portion of Scripture to preach from, to be ministered to devotionally, and to be used in an infinite number of ways that God would use in His wisdom and His glory. We're using a very simple outline to guide our thoughts. Number one, God's splendor in verse 1. Number two, God's strength in verse 2. Number three, God's sovereignty in verses 3 through 8. And then number four, God's supremacy in verse 9. God's supremacy in verse 9. We begin with, number one, God's splendor over all. And here the psalmist David wants us to see and know that the greatness of God far exceeds what creation can reveal. We saw this last week as we looked at points one and two. David, in our mind's eye, we don't know exactly in the narrative of the story of David when he wrote this. Some commentators believe that this was right after, maybe at the evening of or a night or two after his incident where the Lord used him to take down Goliath. And there's hints and references in that in the superscription, so that's what some believe. Others believe that this was actually maybe the very first psalm that David wrote and that he was very, very young. This would be at the early part of his life, even earlier than then, maybe out in a, in a field tending to the sheep as David beholds the glory of God in the night sky. Again, these are things we can't quite know, but the point is, is we have Psalm 8, and we can, we can rest in that. You'll notice that Psalm 8 begins with what's called an inclusio, or a bookend, verses in verses 1 and 9. They're almost essentially the same. David stirs our hearts up to worship, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And then David concludes with an exclamation point with the very same verse there in verse 9. Notice with me God's splendor that we see in verse 1. He opens it up by saying, O Lord, our Lord. And we saw that that's literally rendered, if you notice in your text, the caps, 
The first mention of his name, Yahweh's name, O Lord, capital L-O-R-D, refers to his, his personal name. So you could render it like this. O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Yahweh, our Lord. Yahweh being his personal name, the most intimate name that we have for God. So as David looks up into the splendor of the night sky and considers the splendor of God, he is reminded that his covenant-keeping God is glorious, that God is self-existing, that God is self-sustaining. If you remember, Yahweh is used just all throughout the scriptures, but when Moses asked God, when God called him and said, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, if you remember when Moses said, what do I tell them who, based on whose authority? I'm just a shepherd boy or just a shepherd. And God told Moses, tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. This is Yahweh. He is the self-existing one. He is the self-sustaining one. In fact, Isaiah 42 verse 8 says this, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. And that's what David knows. That's what David is beholding. And this is the first time in the Psalms where he exalts in who Yahweh is, that God will not share his glory with another, that God will not share his glory with carved images. And you say, well, that's an unusual saying. Well, listen, all throughout the Old Testament, every time a king took the throne, the Holy Spirit records for us that they were either godly or ungodly. And part of that was based upon whether or not that king tore down the places of Asherah, tore down the places of child sacrifice, tore down the groves, tore down the high places. Recently, I was not far from here going the other side of town, and I came across a church in a strip mall that was called High Places Church at the Grove. And I thought, unbelievable. <laughs> they don't know their Bible. Here's the point. A king was based on whether being godly or ungodly based on whether or not they destroyed the high places, whether they destroyed the groves and whoever the elders of that church is, they weren't asked that question in their, in their Q&A before they took, took the church. They put it all together in one package, if you're following what I mean there. That being said, David exalts in who God is. In verse 1, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how majestic your translation may render it is your name in all the earth. In other words, David is saying, words fail me here. Now, David is a wordsmith, and God gifts people with the ability to use words, many of them being poets or songwriters. And here, David is at a, a, a loss for words. How excellent is your name? How excellent are you in all the earth? So we see God's splendor Overall, in what ways? Well, he continues on here to point us to all that is around us. In what ways is God's splendor displayed? Where do we see God's glory displayed? Well, he tells us here in the text, verse 1, number 1, horizontally in all the earth. Look around, David would say. Look at God's perfect character as seen or displayed in his created world. He'll go on here in just a moment to describe certain aspects of man's dominion over the animal kingdom. But David is shepherding our heart to say, what do you exalt in? What thrills your soul as you consider the, the, the animal kingdom or the earth horizontally? 
in the ever-changing glories and beauties of nature. Many of you enjoy the sunrise. Many of you enjoy the sunset. Many of you enjoy looking up at the stars, as David did, no doubt, and seeing the glory of God in a beautiful night sky. As the weather gets a little cooler, some of you will enjoy getting a fire pit together in your backyard or going out camping. You're waiting all year long to go camping at this time of year, coming up in a few weeks. And part of that uh, wonderful experience is the glorious night sky in contrast to the warmth of the fire there with your friends as you have fellowship and as you tell stories and you exalt in God's creation. So we see God's splendor. And we say, where does it display? Well, David tells us here, look around in all the earth. Again, remember, David is a hymn writer. David is the first hymn writer to regularly use nature to stir our hearts to praise. And it's why so many of the modern hymn writers and ancient hymn writers would follow in his pattern of leading us to sing uh, songs that, oh, this is my father's world. Uh, all types of songs that can come to mind as we think about how it stirs the use of God's created kingdom to stir our hearts to praise him. The better question to ask, though, is not only where do we see God's glory displayed, but where do we not see God's glory displayed? And that's the question David also answers here. He says, look up vertically. He's dis his glory is displayed over all the heavens. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Verse 1 here, he says, you who have set your glory above the heavens. Notice how he puts emphasis on that above the heavens. God's glory is not in the heavens. God's glory is above the heavens. To fully understand this, we will not unpack this tonight, but to fully understand the glory of God and, and who God is, the very first attribute you start with is one that some theologians call the solitariness of God. And that's an unusual word. We don't use that word every day. But the solitariness of God, that is to say, before anything that is, before, there, the horizon, uh, before the horizontal reality that is created order in the earth and before the vertical reality of looking up and, and seeing the heavens, if we had none of those things, we would have enough to praise God for essentially in who he is. His glory and his person is simply enough. These things are simply mirrors that point us to his glory. In fact, Solomon says this, maybe in one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture that I've read in a while recently. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. In his great prayer of dedication to the temple, Solomon says this little gem. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Now remember, he's dedicating the temple, this glorious monument that he has just built for his God. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. And this is what David is saying. God's glory is above the heavens. When I look up into the night sky, what I see is that your created order, creation, is finite. You say, now wait a second. Last week, if you remember, we, we mentioned the, the new telescope that's, that's regularly making headlines every so often about the new things they're discovering. And, and it's in play, and experts are using it, and they're giving us all types of research and fun things as we explore the created heavens, if you will. And what, what all of it is telling us is that there's so much we don't know, it, it, it overwhelms and makes our mind trip, if you will. But what the psalmist wants us to know is that even that is finite. And remember that God is glorious. He is infinite. And so that is why we praise him. So God's splendor, God's splendor is found everywhere. 
Not only where is it found, but where is it not found, David would tell us. And so we have no excuse to jumpstart our hearts to praise, to be overwhelmed. Secondly, we see God's strength. God's strength displayed over everything. God's strength displayed over all. And verse 2 tells us, unusually, out of the mouth of babes, children, and out of the mouth of nursing infants, you have ordained strength, O God, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Oftentimes, when you study military history, which is a fascinating subject, one of our men in our congregation recently gave me boatloads of books, all kinds of books, and every facet of whether it's pirates or naval history or American military history, and I just cannot wait to work through every single one of them. One of the things is when you work through those types of things, we're often enamored at the fact of might and power and weaponry. It's a fascinating subject to study, no doubt. But here, the Holy Spirit uses David to say something that is the exact opposite of what we would say is the wisdom of man. Instead of David uh, talking about how God matches might for might, and God in his person certainly can do that, God does things a little differently. Verse 2, he tells us that it's out of the mouth of babes and children and nursing infants that God has put the unusual ordination, blessing you could say, of strength. And so God's splendor is displayed not only in nature and the heavens, but God's power is particularly displayed in man's weakness. Now again, this is a side study that you would do well to maybe put as a topical heading and say, study this out. Make a note to yourself to study about how God particularly uses our weakness for his glory. God loves to choose the simple and the base things of this world in the way that he works in his redemptive kingdom. 1 Corinthians 1.26, we read a fuller portion of scripture last time. I want to succinctly put it. Uh, Paul writes this, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So here you've got Pharaoh. God doesn't raise up another in kind in the same way, doing things the same way. God does things completely differently. God ordains a babe to take down this mighty empire, this babe who will grow up and ultimately become a shepherd. God will humble him. God will refine him. And then God will use him to be his man, the humblest man in all the earth, or the meekest man in all the earth, the Bible tells us. That's the way God works. He doesn't raise up someone in kind in the same way to do things in the exact same way. So that's why Paul says, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things of the mighty, or that which is mighty. So what we see in Scripture is that God delights in using least things, last things, lost things, and reclaiming them. Many of you enjoy as a hobby the idea of reclamation furniture or things that were once purposed in one way and they have a renewed use and purpose or antiques and that type of thing. Well, God, you could say, according to Paul in First and Second Corinthians, delights in reclaiming. God delights in taking broken vessels that are crashed. You could say that God can use anyone. God can use anything as long as they are yielded to him. There's no one God can't use except for those who are too good, those who are too full, those who are too polished, those who don't need him, then God can't use those. 
But God delights in using the simple things, the least things of this world, so that he may confound the wisdom of the wise. So notice what David tells us. How does he do this? This phrase we see in verse 2. You've used this phrase before. Out of the mouth of babes. Maybe you post something funny that your kid says or a student says, and out of the mouth of babes. We have all these common vernacular uh, phrases that we use in the English language in our common vernacular, and they all stem from a biblical worldview. Ultimately, they come from God's Word. So if, you, if you've ever used that, well, out of the mouth of babes, where does that come from? It comes from Psalm 8, verse 2. And that's exactly what we're talking about, and that's what David says. He says that God's power is displayed out of the mouths of children. God's power is also displayed and sung through the singing of infants. One commentator says this, God doesn't need armies at all. All God needs is a baby. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? And if you look throughout the scriptures, and that's a, it's a neat study to take, is how often God protects the little ones, his mighty redeemers, his Messiah, the ones that he will send and raise up for that ultimate specific purpose. Whether it's Samuel, whether it's Moses, whether it's Josiah, whether it's ultimately Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is God's strength on display. Now, he uses this not only through the words of children and through the singing of infants, but notice with me, verse 2, he uses these means mysteriously to silence his adversaries and to silence the avenger. Verse 2 tells us, uh, because you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. If you don't mind, turn with me very quickly over to Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. Matthew chapter 21, and verse 14. And we see one of two key passages in the Gospels where Jesus saves a stiff-armed rebuke towards those who have a problem with children. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you have a problem with children per se, then then that's not the angle, that's the other end, that's the result. What's interesting in both passages, they involve children and in an annoyance of children. And in both passages, Jesus defends and Jesus reminds and Jesus serves up a stiff rebuke toward those who should know better. So, so look with me in Matthew 21, verse 14. The context is Jesus has come into Jerusalem. The crowds are singing his praises. They're, they're, they're celebrating him, laying down palms for him. And then it says here, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children, now the context here is that everyone else has stopped crying, Hosanna, son of David, except for one category of people. They, they once all were but there's still a group who continue. They haven't got the memo that, that the song is over, right? And oftentimes that's the way it is with kids. Like, cut it out, right? We're, we're good. We're good. We heard it. We know. Well, that's exactly what happens here. In fact, you could say it like this. This is church. We're, we're in the temple. Stop, kids. And that's exactly what happens. So the children continue to cry out in the temple and saying, Hosanna, son uh, to the son of David. Over and over again, Hosanna to the son of David. Now because of this, the scribes and the Pharisees were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Now admittedly, their problem is not ultimately just the fact that, that the voices are kids. Their problem is equally with what the kids are saying. 
what the children are saying. And they said, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. But then notice this rebuke. This is Jesus' stiffest rebuke to those who should know and don't know. Have you not read? He says this again and again in the scriptures. Have you not read? He asks a question oftentimes with a question. And he says, yes, have you never read? And here he quotes Psalm 8 verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you, Yahweh, have perfected praise. What a text for us. The Pharisees and scribes, again, could not stand to see these children recognize Jesus as the son of David, who was promised. And we know, as Paul Harvey would say, what is the rest of the story? Who was working in the hearts of these children? Who was using their little voices? Who was stirring up their hearts to say, Jesus, son of David, Hosanna to the son of David? It was Almighty God shaming the elites of Israel. It was God taking the weak things, the last things you could describe of this world, and using them to rebuke those who should know better. So here's a takeaway, just an aside. By the way, if you're easily annoyed with children, according to Jesus in the Gospels, you're not in good company. Because regularly he rebukes his disciples and he rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees and both contexts have to deal with the children. Let them come to me. On the flip side of that, parents, let's continue to labor hard and pray hard to train our children how to behave and listen to the word of God in church. Don't hear that and think of it as an excuse just to let them run wild. I'm not saying that at all. But I continue on. God uses the praises of the weak, the uneducated, the frail to reveal truth in the scriptures, to glorify God. And in this particular instance, the unbelief of those who should have known better was silenced by the little ones. Psalm 78 verse 4, Our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works, which He has done. That's a great, great point for us to consider. God's splendor, God's strength. Number three, God's sovereignty over all. Verses three through eight, very quickly, we see God's sovereignty over all. David says this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Again, David goes back into the night sky. He then contrasts that with how insignificant he initially feels. But then that changes. What is man that you are even mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you visit him. You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. We regularly feel moments just like this of what David feels. Moments of insignificantness, if you will. I don't even know if that's a word. But moments of insignificance. We feel that. It might be you're standing at the edge of the ocean. It might be that you go climb to the chimneys or to Clingman's Dome or, or some trail up in the Smokies and you behold God's glory and all of a sudden it dawns on you as you're taking it all in. Wow, I feel so small. I feel so frail. I feel so insignificant. But that's exactly what happens to David. But then David, is, it, it, his biblical worldview kicks in and he realizes, wait a second, it, it's over all of this that God has entrusted to man. You could say it like this, an exalting. See, modern man starts in the wrong premise. Modern man is looking for self-esteem, fulfillment, encouragement, meaning. And they start at the wrong place. We start by beholding our God. 
And it's in beholding our God. We recognize how insignificant we are, but it's also that we find our meaning and what he has ordained for us. David here looks into the heavens. He thinks about God creating the universe, and it's as if David is remembering Genesis chapter 1 through 3. It's almost as if we can see David recalling God creating Adam and Eve and giving them the dominion mandate to have control and dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and over the crops and plants. And so David exalts in God's sovereignty and the universe and the making of the planets, verse 3, and positioning of the planets. And then he moves from that to, secondly, letter B is a subpoint, is to the creating of all mankind. In verses 4 through 8, David answers the question, who am I? Why am I here? And what is this all about? David shepherds our soul here by reminding us that God cares for man, verse 4. What is man that you are even mindful of him? In other words, God, you should not even recognize. You've got too many other things to deal with. How do you even hear my prayer? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him. He talks about how God cares for man. In verse 5, he talks about now how God has given meaning, how God crowns man. And now, in this text, we see both a here and now in David's time, but also a looking forward to the true Son of Man. Verse 5, he says, For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Again, David is meditating, it seems, on Genesis chapter 1 through 3, Psalm 39 reminds us that David does this often. Psalm 39 verse 3, David says, My heart was hot within me. While I was meditating, the fire of Scripture burned within. That is exactly what is happening here. One commentator says this, The psalmist was astonished that the sovereign creator of the galaxies would bestow such a relative significance on those as insignificant as man. So we see God crowns man. He cares for man. And then verses 6 through 8, God commissions man. Notice with me, he says, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. God is sovereign. He's all powerful and in all control. And yet, what is man that God would give us the stewardship of ruling his kingdom? Every time, I've, I think I've said this before, every time you cut your yard, you're fulfilling God's great portion of God's commandment for you to take control over your little corner of the vineyard. Ladies, every time you clean your house and children, every time you help mom and dad do something that is orderly, you're, you're fulfilling that mandate that God has entrusted to us, that God has commissioned to us. And you say, yeah, 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 that doesn't even seem real. Yeah, we'll just stop and see what happens. The dust bunnies will take over your house. They literally will. If you just take a couple of weeks off, you'll begin to see all types of things floating around the, the lights and the lamps. You know it's true. Men, you stop cutting the grass just for a few weeks, and before you know it, vines begin to grow up. They'll begin to start growing up on the house. Your house will start to look green. And if you don't take dominion over that thing, nature will take over. You know it. And so even when we do the most mundane, basic things of life, we are fulfilling this delegated commissioning that God has given to us that David here exalts in. Here, David details some of the ways in verses 7 and 8 that God has done that. Over the flocks of the herds we are to take dominion. Over the beasts of the field. Over the birds of the air. Over the fish of the sea. Verse 8, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths 
of the sea. Number one, God's splendor. Number two, God's strength. Number three, God's sovereignty. And then David rounds out our text again, God's supremacy over all, by ending where he began. In verse 9, he begins there, O Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how excellent is your name everywhere in all the earth. What an amazing psalm. What an amazing text for us that stirs our heart to praise. I want to go back to verse 8 because time looks like will render it to us. In my reading, I had heard of this in my past. I wanted to go look it back up. And, and I wanted to give you the account that's very fascinating of what, how Psalm 8, but particularly verse, excuse me, yeah, Psalm 8, verse 8, the verse that whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea, of how it affected a man named Matthew Mari. Now, some of you, I'm just curious, does anybody know who Matthew Mari is? I'm just, you can just simply raise your hand if you, if, that, if you think it rings a bell. I'll help you here. Matthew Mari was an American naval officer and an oceanographer in the 1800s. But particularly, he experienced sleeplessness and bouts of depression. And sometimes, Matthew Mari's wife would get up and read the Bible out loud to him. And one particular night, she read to him Psalm 8. Verse number 8 particularly caught his attention. Mari believed that if the Bible said that there were paths in the sea, then there must be, and he would find them. He believed that the Bible was scientifically accurate. Matthew studied old ship's logs, and from these logs he compiled charts of the ocean and the wind and the sea currents. To study the speed and direction of the ocean currents, Mari set adrift weighted bottles called drift bottles. They floated slightly below the surface of the water and were not affected by the wind. Instructions were to be put into these bottles directing people that found them to return them with the information requested, which included the date they were found and their location. The data was then compiled and to help Matthew to chart the paths of the sea. Today, Matthew Mari is known as the pathfinder of the sea. He wrote the first book on oceanography in 1855, which included scripture. Mari concluded also that the air has weight, coming from Job 28 verse 25, to make the weight for the winds, and he weighs the waters by measure. Now notice here. Mari also prepared charts of the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean between the United States and Europe. The charts show that undersea cable was possible. Before Mari charted the best paths of the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean, it took ships 180 days to go from New York to San Francisco. Mari's charts reduced the travel time from 180 days to 133 days. The ship called the Flying Cloud made the journey in 90 days in 1851. Mari saved merchants and ship owners in the United States $2 million per year and European owners $10 million per year. He was lauded with praise and gifts and honors from businessmen and politicians, all because of his discovery in Psalm 8 when one night as he was depressed, he heard his wife read to him, Whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. That's fascinating, isn't it? David is exulting in the fact that God has given man, using the weak, frail things of this world, the charge to take dominion over this glorious creation that, that God has given to him. And that's exactly what Matthew Mari did as a, as a professing Christian, simply taking God at his, his word. That's too good for me to leave out. I was hoping I'd have time to be able to share that with you tonight.
As we conclude Psalm 8, again, this theme here in this text is the excellence of God. I want us to answer this question, what does this, oh, I think some of you have put your journals up. I want to give you some of this, be, be, be careful. We're not quite through. And we're answering this question real fast. What does this psalm tell us about God? Well, of course, beginning with Psalm 1 and 9, the whole theme is the excellence of God. And Psalm 8 tells us that God is excellent in His name. God is excellent in His glory. God is excellent in His strength. God is excellent in His action. And God is excellent in His delegation. May we exalt in our God. May we exalt in what he is, the charge that he has given us to do. May we look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, who is the only one who can sufficiently strengthen us and enable us to fulfill the calling that God has called us to do. May we do what we sang about tonight in the song, Be Thou My Vision. Still be my vision, O ruler of all. May the Lord keep us fixed upon him. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that the children would not outsing us, that the gurgling, sweet noises of the babes would not outsing us. Lord, those who've walked with you for many, many years, and yet mysteriously, Lord, oftentimes we do lose our edge, we lose our song, and we hear in the background, what is that haranguing, annoying noise? And it's the little children singing the sweet praises of the Messiah. Father, for all of us, will you forgive us? Will you forgive us for our lack of ability to praise you? Would you help us to notice and see where we wandered off course, off path? Father, may we afresh and anew remember the callings you've placed upon our life. Father, you never have revoked the calling of taking dominion in our corner of the world for your glory, of taking the skill set of stewardship that you've given to us, and every single day mimicking our Creator God with wisdom and intellect. Father, you have not revoked your calling for the Great Commission, for us to go forth and teach and preach the gospel to every creature. And may we continue to shout and to sing and tell of your glorious praises. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus as the second Adam. Father, who came in our place, who died for us. And Father, who gives us his righteousness and gives us an eternal hope over death, hell, and the grave. Father, would you continue to increase our faith even though it's small at times or wavering at times, Father, help us to rest it in the promised Messiah. It's in your Christ's name we pray. Amen.